Hi, my name is Bidem Yologunde and welcome to the Bid Picture Podcast, a show that highlights interesting cybersecurity topics, news and events, and how they affect regular folks like you and me, and also how they all fit into the big picture of online cybersecurity in this digital age. Today on the show, I'm going to be talking about how a college professor in Orlando, Florida was harassed online and the harassment involved a home address and fake Uber and Lyft requests and also an order of six large pizzas sent to a home address, none of which she requested for. So thanks for joining us and let's get to it. In Orlando, Florida, a professor, um, a college professor, let's call her Dr. Jane, was pranked online by unknown individuals last December. What happened and how did it happen? So a possible preamble to that incident is related to something that happened with a student in one of Dr. Jane's classes during the fall 2020 semester last year. Throughout the semester, some of Dr. Jane's students had issues turning in weekly assignments and quizzes on time because they were either taking care of a sick relative that got COVID-19 or they had to work extra hours to support their family's reduced income or their living situation changed drastically due to the pandemic and they couldn't afford to log on to video classes during class times or keep up with weekly readings. Overall, Dr. Jane was very accommodating and she allowed a lot of late submissions as long as the students explained why they were submitting their work late. As with most undergraduate classes, two students in particular out of a class of 32 students were in the habit of turning in their papers late almost every week without notifying Dr. Jane about why they were submitting late. The two of them were also the ones who were quick to challenge their grades, despite their late unjustified submissions. So the last day for Dr. Jane's class last fall, last semester, was Sunday, December 6th. By the 11.59 p.m. deadline for that um, week and for the semester overall, 30 students had turned in their final exams on the online learning portal that the school uses, with the exception of those habitual late submitters, those two students. And of course, the online learning portal stopped accepting submissions by the deadline, 11.59 p.m., Sunday, December 6th. So Dr. Jane got an email from one of those two students. She attached a paper to the email, which wasn't the way the submission was supposed to go because the the online learning portal has this um, plagiarism detector built into it. So every student has to submit through that online learning portal. And then the, the tool checks that paper to know whether they copied some online sources and didn't cite properly and so on and so forth. So that's part of the reason why almost every professor all over the world uses some form of plagiarism detector so that as the students are submitting, this thing is checking it. So 
they won't just have to submit by email because now the professor has to do all the checking himself or herself rather than having that to do the checking automatically as the student is submitting. So anyway, one of those two students submitted a paper by 6.30 p.m. a day after the submission was due. In her email, she wrote that the class was too stressful and dense and that the materials were not easy to understand and the weekly 300-word essays and quizzes were a tad bit too much, in quote. She added that she hoped she could get a fair grade considering all the hard work and sacrifices she had to make to be able to turn in a paper by 6.30 p.m. a day after the deadline. So this student was basically saying the course was just overwhelming because the professor didn't think to make it less dense for the students. And that's why she was almost 18, 19 hours late in submitting a final paper. And this is one of the students that was habitually submitting stuff late every week. Despite the accommodations that Dr. Jane has made available since day one of the semester, saying, I understand there's a pandemic going on, you guys have so many things going on. If you need extra time, let me know. Everyone is going through stuff, I would accommodate you. She never ever requested accommodation from the professor. And then on the final day of class, she was now saying, the class is too much. The professor doesn't know what she's doing. It's it's even a sacrifice that she was able to submit 19 hours late on the final day. And okay, the second student then emailed her own final paper around 7.38 p.m. Again, without any reasons or notes as to why she was submitting her work late, but then the second student didn't have any complaints, unlike the first late submitter. Unfortunately, Dr. Jane had turned in the final grades for the entire class to the department head by 11 a.m. that Monday, December 7th. So the semester ended December 6th, final deadline to submit everything outstanding, the people that had outstanding assignments, she gave them up till the deadline to submit everything alongside the final papers, everything due by 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time, December 6th, so that she could turn in the final grades to the department on Monday, December 7th at 11 a.m. So invariably, Dr. Jane had to stay up all night to grade these students' papers, including the final exams, including the, the outstanding assignments and quizzes for 12 weeks worth of classes for 32 students. But then two students decided to go ahead and submit their assignments way after the deadline, after the final grades had been submitted. So since the start of the semester in late August, Dr. Jane had constantly reminded students during the optional weekly office hours about late submissions, especially for the final exam, and how there will be a short turnaround time for her to grade the final 
because the department required all professors to turn in final grades by 11 a.m. on Monday, December 7th, no exceptions. She therefore made it abundantly clear that the deadline of 11.59 p.m. on December 6th was not flexible, as she would have to stay up all night in order to grade everyone fairly and still meet her own 11 a.m. deadline on Monday, December 7th. So when she saw that first student's email complaining about how the course was stressful and dense, she was both disappointed and disgusted. All her students knew they could approach her for extra time on any assignments or quizzes. In fact, almost half of the class had issues turning their stuff in on time due to the stresses of the pandemic, but she made more than enough accommodations and in the end, everyone felt fairly treated. She even had to open up the final exam four weeks in advance of the submission date so that they could have they could all have enough time and attempt to walk through the final exam modules. Everything worked out fine for 30 other students except those two. Dr. Jane replied, both of them, stating that she had turned in their final grades to the department earlier that morning in line with what she had repeatedly notified the class several times throughout the course of the semester, which meant they both got zero for the final exam as a result of not turning in their exams by the deadline. She then replied the complainer separately and reiterated that while her comments were rude and uncalled for, she actually had all the necessary information and assistance ahead of time since day one of the semester, and her pattern of behavior wasn't exactly justifying her recent actions. The student then replied with an outburst email stating that she wished she had dropped the class during the drop period at the beginning of the semester and that Dr. Jane's email attacked her self-esteem and her chances of keeping up her scholarship would then be in jeopardy due to the C grade she ended up getting for that class. There were no further replies from Dr. Jane. She figured if the student wanted to take the issue further, there was sufficient email message evidence to provide a complete picture of what went down. During the weeks following the incident, Dr. Jane didn't hear anything about the incident from either her department head or student affairs, so she figured the student had finally taken responsibility for her actions. So that was the possible preamble of what happened before the harassment, the cyber harassment case in late December. So again, I call it possible because there's still no connection up till now with that incident with Dr. Jane's student and the pranks that were played on Dr. Jane in late December. So what, what were this what was this prank or what were these pranks and how did they happen? We'll get into that after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back. So on Wednesday morning, December 30th, 2020, Dr. Jane saw a red Toyota Camry pull up in her driveway as she was cleaning her downstairs living room. She didn't recognize the car and she wasn't expecting any visitors or deliveries. 
So she thought maybe one of her two teenage daughters had ordered food online. So she called out to them to verify. They both said they didn't order anything. So Dr. Jen put on a mask to go find out who it was. It turned out to be an Uber. And the driver said he was there to pick Jen's party of three to a Dinos in Light event at the Orlando Science Center, about 30 minutes away. That's strange, Jane told the driver as she did not order any Uber to go anywhere and she was sure her daughters didn't order Uber either. So while they were still trying to figure out the source of the confusion, a white Honda Accord with a lift sign on the windscreen pulled up in Dr. Jane's driveway and the lift driver announced that she was there to pick up Jane's party of three to a winter wonderland event at Wekiva Island, about 45 minutes away. So perplexed, Dr. Jane repeated to the lift driver that she definitely did not order any rides to any winter wonderland events. By that time, even the Uber and Lyft drivers were beginning to see that something was wrong. Could it be a problem with the two apps sending drivers to the wrong pickup address? That seemed unlikely as they were both on different platforms. One is Uber, one is Lyft. They both had the same address and the same name, and they both arrived within minutes of each other. Dr. Jane's two daughters had come out of the house at that point and were equally confused as to what was going on. As all five of them were analyzing the puzzle in the driveway, a black Nissan Altima with a Pizza Hut sign on the car pulled up on the street next to the mailbox. The driver came out of the car with six large boxes of pizza and announced that she was there to deliver a party order for Jane. Now this was getting ridiculous. Neither Dr. Jane nor her two daughters had ordered six large pizzas. They don't even eat pizza at all. At that point, the Uber and Lyft drivers canceled the fake trip request and left. Dr. Jane even tipped, tipped them both for their troubles. The pizza lady then showed Dr. Jane the receipt for the pizzas in case she recognized the card that was used to pay for the others. She didn't. The pizza lady then said she would gladly return the pizzas if they were sure it wasn't some surprise order or anything. Again, Dr. Jane told the pizza lady that neither she nor her two daughters eat pizza. They just don't eat pizza. So there was absolutely no reason for them to order pizza. Their friends, their family, they all know they don't eat pizza. So no one could possibly surprise them with a pizza order, not to talk of six large pizza orders. The pizza lady then told Dr. Jane that she has seen a few pizza um, delivery pranks before and then Dr. Jane again tipped her for her troubles and then the pizza lady left. So after she left, Dr. Jane again asked her daughters if any of, her fri- of their friends could be responsible for the pickup and delivery pranks. They both said they couldn't think of who could do such a thing. The they dragged on without any further pranks and Dr. Jane found herself checking the driveway several times. There were no follow-up calls, text messages or emails from unknown individuals to claim responsibility for the pranks, which made it all the more stressful. Apparently, someone or a group of people that she doesn't know now knows where she and her daughters live and to her that was extremely scary. 
Later that night, Dr. Jen remembered the incident from three weeks before, the one where one of her students had claimed that Dr. Jen's email responses to her late submission attacked her self-esteem and jeopardized her scholarship chances. Could all those pranks from earlier in the day have been from that student? If so, how did she find out her home address? Dr. Jane had made sure to separate her personal life from her work life as much as possible. She hardly ever invited her colleagues from school over to her house before the pandemic. She only listed her school email on her class syllabuses, and she never gives out a personal phone number to her students. Very few of her daughter's friends know their house address, and they both confirmed that none of their friends were responsible for the pranks earlier that day. So who could this prankster be? All of this made Dr. Jane hardly sleep that night. The following day, she decided to Google herself online. And after a few clicks, she saw a website that had her name, current and previous addresses, a relationship with her two daughters and a late husband, all her neighbors' names and addresses, as well as their political party affiliations, when they registered to vote, their previous addresses, who they might all be related to, and so on. She was so surprised to find all that information just sitting there on a very basic-looking website available on the internet to anyone without having to log in somewhere or pay for it somewhere. In essence, the previous day's pranks could literally have been from anyone, whether they actually knew her or not, and that was even more unsettling than the prank itself. It is easy to deem the pranks on Dr. Jane as funny, but imagine if instead of fake Uber requests and pizza deliveries, the pranksters mailed creepy and dangerous stuff to her home address or swatted her. So what is, what is swatting? Swatting is a criminal harassment tactic of deceiving an emergency service, either the police, fire, or ambulance services, into sending emergency response teams to another person's address just for the sake of frightening the target. Victims of swatting may never know who called emergency services on them, and the lasting effects are comparable to those of post-traumatic stress. As far as I know, Dr. Jane has not been able to identify the person or the people who pranked her last December, but she has at least been able to reduce the amount of her public records that, that are available online. She notified her department head and the university police of the incident, but they had very little information to base a comprehensive investigation on. The plan now is to observe and report subsequent cyber harassment instances or any contact from individuals claiming to be responsible for the December 30 incident. So what's, what's the takeaway from all this? Data is what fuels most of the internet algorithms we interact with on a daily basis. Social media companies become profitable by monetizing human data some of them do so more ethically than others. It is therefore important to be mindful of how much personal information we share online as we use social media, map applications, um, delivery services, home security devices, and so on. Nowadays, even cars are getting smarter. Um, if you drive a Tesla, 
Tesla pretty much knows your home address, your office address, and any other places you visit frequently day to day, week to week. And that's your data in Tesla's hands. So what is, you can, you can find your public records by doing, there are several sites that offer to, prom, to remove public records from internet search engines and you can find them by doing a quick online search for how to remove my public records from the internet. So that's do a basic search online for how to remove my public records from the internet. So what's, what's considered public record usually vary from state to state and from country to country, but they usually include stuff like arrest records, government contracts, driver's license information, birth records, marriage records, death records, securities and exchange commission filings for businesses, court documents, voter registration information, property ownership, tax information, occupational licenses, and so on and so forth. So as you can see, there are so many kinds of data that are public records. And we don't necessarily consider them as public records because for many Americans, voter information is only when there's an election coming up. That's when they know, okay, I have to update my voter records because I moved in the past one year or in the past two years. So between the last election and the next election, I've moved. So I have to update my my voter records or I moved. So I have to update my driver's license information. So they don't necessarily see it as something they need to keep an eye on to lock down because they only interact with that information maybe once a year or once in four years. So it's not top of mind for them. So unlike some data that we, and again, an interesting thing is every day we use our phones, we use social media, we use Google Maps or Apple Maps to go anywhere we go. But that's literally Google knowing where you were 10 minutes ago because you use Google Maps to get to where you are now. So Google knew that 10 minutes ago you were in point A, now you are at point B. And they can do whatever they want with that data, with that data. So if you go to Walmart, now they can send you adverts for things at Walmart because Google literally now knows you are in a Walmart location. A more extreme option of locking down our data would be to delete all of our primary social media accounts completely and open the strictly necessary ones with throwaway email accounts. So throwaway email accounts are those ones you open for a specific reason and then the email kind of dies off or you set a time for the email to be deleted because you only open the email to get the confirmation notification of opening an, an account somewhere. So you don't want to be bombarded with the subsequent marketing email from that website because you literally don't have anything else to do with that website after opening the account. So again, there's so many companies and organizations that just, that's what they do. They they open throwaway email accounts for users. There's, there are websites that open throwaway credit cards. 
for users. You can do a Google search on that as well. So you, you don't have to enter your credit card information all the time when you go somewhere to go online to buy something, especially when it's a one, one-off shopping. So you can, there's so many opportunities to do throw away um, email, throw away credit cards. And for some people using their, their home address or their mailing address for something is something sensitive. So you can go to a post office, open a PO box and use that for all your mailing um, information and so on. So there's, there's so many ways to lock down our personal information, personal data. Once we start getting into the habit of taking online security, taking cyber security seriously, just as we take physical security seriously, then it's going to make a lot of difference, both in the short term, medium term and long term regarding where and how our data ends up. So you may not have any reason for someone to play pranks on you online, but you may know someone who might be a possible victim of online pranking, swatting. It may not be a professor at a college. It might be literally anyone that could be a victim of online pranking. It might be your next door neighbor that is pranking you because they were able to find certain things about you online. So that's all I have for today's episode of The Beat Picture. The episode is produced, edited, and audio engineered by yours truly, Bidemir Logande. Please join us again next time as we continue with a deep dive on cybersecurity news, topics, and events, and how they can be applied to our daily lives for robust cyber threat intelligence and awareness. Make sure you subscribe to The Beat Picture on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please share the show with everyone you think might benefit from it. For questions, comments, or any suggestions on which topics you would like to hear about on future episodes, please send an email to bdemi at thebeatpicture.com. That's B-I-D-E-M-I at thebeatpicture.com. Thank you for your time. God bless and talk to you next time.